That's good. Andrew Faust here, Permaculture Perspectives. Today, I'm going to get into energy in its broadest sense, you know, in the most, uh, let's say, comprehensive view that I can start off with, because I think that's probably useful. And it's in part inspired today. I wanted to do this talk on energy because a participant at the last class that we did on permaculture business ideas was asking me if there were another source or a source that I could point her to for some of the outline that I was giving in the class of how to rank energy systems in design. What kind of things should we do first, second, third, fourth, and fifth when it comes to harvesting energy, utilizing it, integrating it. That would be the steps I would say, harvest, utilize, integrate. And today I'm going to start with the broader view and then quickly dial us into for, for that student, the graduate of the class who was in the permaculture business solutions I will be outlining the piece that I then went home and researched because I did perhaps somewhat flippantly say in the class and with the caveat that I would check it out that I was certain, pretty certain that nobody else had uh, outlined this ranking that I'll break down for you today that I think is pretty useful. And so I, I looked at David Holmgren's book, uh, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. I figured that was probably our best bet for somebody else who would have broken this down, and he did not in his section on energy cycling or in Obtain a Yield, both of which I think uh, you should check out and be familiar with. His book is an excellent book to have uh, under your belt. That's Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability by David Holmgren. All right, so energy. Let's talk about, you know, we're on a planet in outer space circling the sun. I always start with that because the sun is the biggest thing going on on the earth when it comes to energy. And it's the first energy source that we want to sequester, accrue, and make good use of on a site. And, you know, the, the earth is expanding with the universe. That is, our entire solar system is. And we are spiraling with the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. We're on an outer arm of it. And we are spinning... The Earth is spinning at a thousand miles per hour eastward at its equator. And it is also traveling in outer space in its orbit around the sun at about 65 to 67,000 miles per hour. And the Earth has a very dynamic elliptical orbit as it goes around the sun. In fact, I was recently, just last night, watching a really 
clear educational video about the variations in the distance of the Earth from the Sun in its most elliptical stage of orbit at what's called the perihelion. The Earth in January and February this time of year is the closest to the Sun. And when it's in its extreme elliptical state, it is as close as 80 million miles away from the Sun. And then, in July, in summer, when it is at the furthest from the Sun, and the warmest in the Northern Hemisphere, and the most elliptical extreme, it is as far away as 116 million miles from the Sun. So the Earth is varying from as close as 80 million to as far away as 116 million miles from the Sun in one year's orbit. It's a very dynamic system. And that's the first power that we want to harness, is the free, abundant, and still largely not well understood energy forms that are latent in the fact that we are on a planet in outer space where there is an incredible amount of movement, volition, gravity, topographic variation on the Earth's surface, and we're going to tap into those in all of our site design, all of our infrastructure needs. And this is why I'm excited to share with anybody who will take the time with me to dive into it what a retrofit of our infrastructure looks like when we regionally adapt it to become more geographic, more appropriate to where we are on this planet because there's a lot of free energy to tap into when we start to really adapt to where we are. So I'll go more into some of the variations about the Earth, too, that I learned just last night. You know, the well, we know that the... Uh, Sun is something that the Earth circles and has a day of about 24 hours. It turns out that the Sun revolves every 27 days. It also turns out that the Earth goes back and forth in its angle because the rotation of the Earth is at an angle to the vertical. It's not straight up and down. And this angle to the vertical of the Earth in its rotation changes from 22.1 degrees to 24.5 degrees over about 41,000 years' time. So understanding that we're on this planet and how to pay attention and be good students of these larger patterns of the planet and its relationship to the sun and first tapping into maximizing this free available energy that is falling over most of the Earth's surface every single day except for the North and the South Pole, depending on whether we're talking about winter in the Northern Hemisphere, in which case the Southern Pole at that point is getting six months of daylight or if we're talking about summer in the Northern Hemisphere, in which case the North Pole is getting six months of daylight. So the Earth is something that's tilting, rotating, moving, traveling in space, and 
has a massive thermonuclear furnace that is spilling cosmic rays all over it from 93 million miles away. And the sun is 99.6% of the mass of the solar system. It's estimated that the total harvest potential from sunlight would be somewhere around 580 trillion watts. That's the potential harvestable energy daily coming onto the planet from solar gain. Wind energy, roughly, is estimated at 40 trillion watts daily on the planet's surface. Potential harvestable, free, abundant, slipping through our fingers energy. And the next energy source that we really want to then look at is decomposition and how to begin to really harvest the potent power that they, the microbes who do all of those jobs, generate as well. So to get into the breakdown that I mentioned earlier, let's look at this energy and how to cycle it. I like to call it ecological Aikido, where we're using what we could refer to as Gaian mechanisms and creating a long-term regional mosaic of mature, diverse, multifunctional, recombinant ecologies. And I use each of those words very carefully. We want something that is designed with the long-term in mind, so we put it under easement protection and we plant it out to be a harvestable landscape in perpetuity. It's regionally designed to be suited to where it is. It's a mosaic. So it's something that has beauty, complexity, diversity. We want it to become mature. So it's something that we're going to think about what it looks like in 100 years from now. Diverse, multifunctional, so ecologically beneficial, as well as a diversity of harvestable materials coming from it for local, biologically-based economies. Recombinant ecologies. These are ecologies that don't occur naturally and are created by people. They're an assemblage of wild species that occur in that landscape and cultivated, domesticated species that will do well in relationship with the wild species. And this unique variation of permaculture is really one of the most ingenious details of its technique that's often underappreciated in its significance when we realize that really... Uh, we have this opportunity in these landscapes to begin to create a new ecology. An ecology that combines the best of what nature is showing us we'd like to be here, along with what will enable us as a society to transition our economies from being a petroleum-based 
economy to being one that's deriving most of its goods from its local landscape in beautifully restorative ways. All of that from recombinant ecologies. So, you know, let me get back to this criteria and say that one of the interesting things I was realizing as I thought about what I wanted to say today is that I love to phrase this criteria as first, let's max out passive systems. And I I can't think of a better way to say it. I know it's not that sexy and exciting to say passive, but the reality is (laughs) that, you know, it's a passive system in the sense that what I'm wanting to refer to with those words to max, max out some dimension of design and infrastructure that's vastly underutilized, meaning that we can do so much by catching, holding, and storing water high in the system, following our principle of energy cycling, catch it, hold it, store it high. And when we practice this in site design, in a diversity of applications, so let's catch it, hold it, store it high, in rain tanks off of buildings, in earthworks off of roads, all around the landscape in the form of vegetation that is deepening soil health and infiltration of rainwater. So catch it, hold it, store it, sink it, slow it, spread it. Let's do all those things with water because that is a form of energy cycling. So begin to integrate the principles and understand that on a site, all of those are also doing what I'm saying broadly when I say let's maximize what work is getting done with passive systems. Work getting done. So is is the work to improve, sorry about that, is the work to improve water quality, soil quality, air quality and deepen soil, then, you know, how we're going to do that is with living systems, with plants. And what most people who work in energy really just focus on active systems. All they think about are ways to create electricity. And what is so important about where permaculture puts the focus is it pulls back the technological emphasis and says first before we use some tool of some sort let's see what we can get done just by where we place all of the elements that we want to bring into this landscape and all of the activities and how do we place those elements and activities in such a way that they require less effort to provide a yield and that they increase in that yield over time and decrease in maintenance. All achievable when we pay attention to where we are and live in places that are well suited to our goals. Then we can begin to really thrive in the places that we call home with these assemblages that permaculture is saying are really an important beginning. They're the bones of the flesh that you put onto the landscape, the bones being the infrastructure, which you want to have 
be of such a configuration and layout that it enables you to passively harvest solar income with plants and trees and also passively harvest water income with earthworks and rainwater tanks and proper placement of buildings to catch that water and be able to gravity feed it to other plantings and gardens and infrastructure that are lower than it. Right, So those are all passive systems to max out. Before you get into active systems, then, then you need a lot less of them. You need a lot less electricity when you pay attention to these subtle aspects of site design and layout and paying attention to what you're doing with a free, available, abundant material that you're getting a reliable, consistent income of regularly sun sunlight water nutrients nutrients from food that people eat nutrients from people taking showers what's happening with those nutrients from people flushing toilets how are those being handled on site are we getting a yield all conceivable biodigesters 20,000 of them create enough energy to power 30 million homes right now. Right now, 30 million people in China have all of the energy needs they need, Just not just a few. They're running their entire house off of their septic tank. 30 million of them. Their goal is by just 2030, China's goal with biodigesters, which most of you probably have barely heard of or less had actual experience with their goal is to have 300 million of their homes set up to be power independent from integrated black water gray water biodigester systems and the other thing about biodigesters they are legitimately a passive system because all that you're doing is creating a engineered septic tank that captures the methane of what you're sending into it and sends it through pipes back to your house. Far less explosive gas than propane. Doesn't sink, but actually rises and would just leave a house instead of settling in the basement and exploding. So methane, much safer, comes into the house. Then in China, these already 30 million homes use that to power their hot water heater, I have one of them here that I'm running off of one, working beautifully. And to power a generator that then they use to create the electricity for the home. And then they send another line to their stove. So they're cooking, they're generating electricity, and they're creating their domestic hot water. All with a yield from what right now we get no benefit of at all but spend an awful lot of time figuring out in residential development projects in rural and suburban areas regulating what people do with septic and leach field and it turns out that if you do this passive system just make it so the downhill drains from the house being fed by gravity from the building go to a septic tank that collects biosolids 
that then has this particular engineered design to it that has an overflow pipe that sends it to a leach field. And when it comes out of the tank that collects the methane, because of how they're designed, they release an effluent that is 90-some percent fecal coliform free. And so a much smaller leach field and treatment area would be necessary to bring it into being a healthy effluent to be getting in touch with the water table after it goes through a proper leach field. That's a passive system that I wanted to walk you through a little bit more detail of that I'm particularly fascinated with when we talk about energy and cycling. It's a really important one. And when we also talk about energy cycling and passive systems, my next most exciting passive way to think about how to capture income is to use biology, right? Just think about using plants, using living systems. One of the ways I like to put this is to say, first catch, hold, store, and use energy high in the system as far as that rainwater, that solar income, have plants, have rain tanks, have ponds higher in your landscape, trees that you grow for fuel wood, so when you cut them down, you're moving them downhill. Hopefully high side is to the north, low side of the land moves towards the south. And as you move across the landscape, to be then thinking about capturing the income, getting another yield from it, by cycling it through as many living systems as possible before it leaves your site. So I'll say that one more time as one complete phrase. I think it's my own unique phrasing or addition to one of the core permaculture design principles. So the traditional beginning is catch, hold, and store energy high and use it high in the system. And then what I like to add to it is cycle it through as many living systems as possible before it leaves your site. This is another way to optimize biology, which is yet another one of our principles. So it integrates these two recommendations of permaculture design. So let's catch hold, store energy high in the system, cycle it through as many living systems as possible before it leaves our site, and that way we have optimized biology. And as we optimize biology, let's, while we're at it, use a recombinant ecology that's historically informed, that's thoughtful, and regionally adapted. So not only are we going to optimize biology, we're going to fine-tune that technique, that tool, to make it even more of a powerful application by using a recombinant ecology. So again, combining wild species that are historically informed and make sense for where we are, like a wild variety of chestnut or a wild variety of acorn or a wild variety of groundnut or ginseng or blue or black cohosh for medicinal crops and wildlife. And it's going to be thoughtful. We're going to think about things that people could use for 
herbal medicine and for textiles and for wildlife and biology. And it's going to be regionally adapted, this recombinant ecology. So now a passive system, again, where we were first just starting with, let's optimize biology, and then we fine-tuned that and said, well, the really most um, comprehensive or a more interesting and and perhaps arguably more effective way to harvest that solar income is with a diversity of plants and a diversity of plants that combines wild, cultivated, perennial, woodies with herbaceous, thinking about animals and wildlife as well as being able to circulate through perhaps heritage breed pigs, wild and heirloom varieties of turkeys. So after we've looked at all these ways in the landscape and our projects to catch, hold, store rainwater, use it for things like flushing toilets, doing laundry, gravity feed it. If we want to pump that rainwater, here's our our third layer, something that's mechanical, regionally appropriate technology. And that might look like a exercise gym in the basement of a building that as people are using bicycles, they are also pumping water to a tank that is on the roof of the building. And this is happening all day long and the tank on the roof of the building is one of the wooden tanks that we see throughout New York City and that is used to then pressurize the water in a passive way using gravity to the floors that are all below that large tank. The fourth way to move energy and water and materials on a site to an active system is low-tech renewable. Low-tech renewable way to move water from, say, a large reservoir in the basement would be with a DC direct pump from a solar array. That's where you take a photovoltaic panel. You have a wire that goes from that panel to a pump that is drawing water directly from a tank, and it can push that water hundreds of feet up to a tank that then gravity feeds to any use point you want below it. And so piggybacking storage tanks is a common part of catchment systems when we look at all kinds of what already is in use in high-rises in places like Brooklyn and Manhattan. So after we've maxed out what we could do with low-tech renewable systems, what we could do with DC direct lighting for emergency lighting, what we could do with fans that were micro fans that, again, are coming from a low-load photovoltaic system. And then we've also maxed out with our passive systems, to back up for a second, our passive solar hot water, solar thermal hot water, which over a third of all the homes in China, over a third of one billion people's homes in China. So that's 250 million people's homes are getting their hot water just from solar thermal hot water. And so doing everything we can with that in the Northeast, where even already 
in Austria where solar thermal is in big use, it has been shown to offset their need for non-renewable hot water generation by 40% in the wintertime. And that means spring, summer, fall, it's 100% of their hot water is coming from a passive array that goes to a heat exchanger typically and provides all the domestic hot water in that building. This is totally achievable. It's going to be a new economy booster that's coming. You combine solar thermal with biogas, and we've got a real infusion of viable technologies, clean, green technologies that are scalable and essential to transitioning to what permaculture has been talking about for decades, but arguably hasn't been as articulate as I'm being here, and I'm not trying to pat my own back here. I'm simply wanting to say that there's a lot of room in permaculture for people to begin to spend more time talking about the details of how we build this out. What does it look like to retrofit this infrastructure to be more regionally self-reliant? I emphasize more because I'm not saying that we need to be 100% self-reliant, just more so in the places where it makes sense. And you see how as we just today begin to explore and scratch the surface of this method that is called energy cycling and practice ecological Aikido, we really can expand our potential to celebrate the abundance that is truly available and harvestable on this planet. So that that way we could stop at our fourth layer of low-tech renewable before we even had to get into our fifth layer, which is high-tech renewable. Thank you.